Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we talk about famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, here with my co-host, John Strecker. Um, and I am so excited for this week's episode. Uh, we will be doing an author by the name of Hazel Hawthorne, who I'm guessing many of you have not heard of before. I have not. Um, which is totally fine, because that's exactly what this podcast is designed to do, is to expose you to new um, works of literature and new authors to learn about. Um, so I stumbled across Hazel through my studies of Provincetown um, and kind of triangulated my interests around um, writing and the Provincetown players and the Provincetown culture for artists in general. Um, and we are very fortunate this week to actually have a very special guest coming, quote unquote, all the way from Finland to discuss Hazel Hawthorne with us. Um, her name is Inka Lesma, and she has done uh, an extensive project on Hazel and Hazel's works. And so I am like over the moon <laughs> to have her on the podcast and to be able to discuss something that means so much to me with someone else um, to whom it's equally important. And listener, I'm sure you're going to find out just as... Uh strongly as I've found out how much this author truly means to Stephanie and how niche of an author it is as well. Uh, a quick side note, Stephanie asked me for one thing for her birthday, and it was a book by this author which has been out of print since the 1930s. Uh, and I have looked up and down the internet as well as a bunch of brick and mortar stores and I cannot find it except for a website that I stumbled across that happened to be Inca's website, and I sent Inca a message saying that my friend would really love this Hazel Hawthorne book for her birthday, and she goes, oh, Stephanie? <laughs> I, I had never told her anything about this. So, listener, niche author and Inca's great. Let's go. Um, so, yes, um, I'm really looking forward uh, to sharing this with you and to... I guess um, acknowledge what an amazing opportunity this is to be able to connect with people uh, from literally all corners of the world. Um, and I just think that's one of my favorite parts about getting to know um, these authors through doing this podcast is getting to know the people who care about them just as much as I do. Uh, and that's been really affirming in, in a lot of ways. So I hope for you, this is a really uh, cool opportunity for you to kind of see that come to fruition. Um, before we get started, though, just a couple quick announcements. Um, we're doing our very special Valentine's Day episode with the Bronte sisters coming up on February 9th from 4 to 6 p.m. So if you're interested in attending that, again, amazing Valentine's Day date idea or singles mixer, depending on your perspective. Both. Uh, both. Yes, and. Um <laughs> Please let us know if you're interested in coming so we can find an appropriate venue for the number of people interested. Uh, you can reach out on any form of social media. Um, if you have our numbers, feel free to shoot us a text. Um, but we're really excited to be doing that um, for you. Uh, and I guess the only other announcement, I will be taking a small trip to New York City in about two weeks. And so if there's a literary writ landmark that you think I should visit, uh, please feel free to share that with me. I'm really looking forward to going to um, a bunch of different places that I've tagged, some of which I've been to before and others that are new, including Edna St. Vincent Millay's house. Um, I'm taking a side trip to see the Edgar Allan Poe cottage just outside the city. 
and the Lillian Vernon Creative Writers House, which is a part of NYU. So again, feel free. Anything? Listeners, I'm very worried because I know that Stephanie is going to want to stay once she has her small trip (laughs) for a literary vacation in New York, and I don't know if she'll be coming back. That just means you'll have to come out and meet me. That's true. And we'll make it longer. Uh, We'll definitely be going on GitLit tour again, but until then, this is sort of a a small side trip in the meantime. Um, So with that being said, I think we'll turn it over um, to the subject of our podcast, Hazel Hawthorne. Hazel Louise Hawthorne was born on October 24th, 1901, um, making her a Scorpio, Mm. which I feel is perfectly adequate. Um, And fun fact about her family, she is actually a relative of one Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, among other texts. So that's kind of cool, right? Um, literature is literally in her blood. Um, her father, Hazel's father, was a teacher and high school principal, and eventually a superintendent of schools. But unfortunately, he died when Hazel was 12, which I feel like is right at an age where that has a really deep impact. Not that any age has one more than other, but you know, sometimes when kids don't get to know a parent, which is sad in its own right but right. to sort of be 12 and just kind of trying to figure out your identity and place in the world um, have a big hole all of a sudden yeah so it really um struck hazel deeply um and would affect her uh there on after and her mother uh kind of opposite of that martha lived to be 94 whoa <laughs> so go martha she was the opposite um let's see she had one brother named roger And um, one of the things that I think is going to be most interesting, and I feel a little intimidated doing this podcast, knowing that we have Inca on the other half, um, is that Hazel doesn't have a ton of information, I guess, readily available uh, to us without some, some digging. So when I usually go to research, and I don't know if you feel this as well, um, I use probably anywhere from six to eight websites to cross examine information and make sure all my facts are right and that kind of thing. Um, With Hazel, it was a lot more first-person articles, interviews, um, work that Inca produced herself, but it was a lot harder for me to find basic information about her, whereas I don't struggle with other well-known authors. So this was kind of a cool research challenge, but Hmm. as a result, this might seem a bit sparse. In 1918, she's about 16 years old, she publishes her first poem, uh, which I thought was very cool. And then in the 1920s, this is where my interest kind of kicked in, she moves out to Provincetown with her first husband, Celian Ufford. Um, She's married pretty early. Yes. Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, He was a Harvard graduate and Unitarian minister. And they have five children by the time Hazel was 27. Oh my gosh. I am 27. Where are your five children? (laughs) It's called They're All My Books and They Live in My Apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have none. (laughs) So she has, um, Jane is her oldest daughter, uh, followed by Nancy, Margaret, John, and Sally, her youngest. 
Um, so these are, they have a, a big family kind of right off the bat already. And another fun fact, Nancy, uh, her daughter got proposed to by Jack Kerouac in the Provincetown Dunes at one point. So I thought that was kind of cool. Wow. And she said no. Um, I don't know exactly what happened. It didn't end in marriage, but I mean, good for her. Okay. <laughs> um, so by the time um, the 1930s hit, Hazel has divorced and two of the children, Margaret and John, go to live in California with their father. And Hazel has the other three. But still, she's a single mother in the 1930s with three kids. Wow. Let's go. Um, in the early 30s, so a couple years later, she marries Morris Warner, uh, who's from New York City. And he is actually an author as well. He writes nonfiction mostly, um, lots of different books, and then newspapers and magazines and that kind of thing. Uh, they spend their winters in New York City, but then start to summer in Provincetown, which after he dies, after Morris dies, she settles there permanently. Hmm. So she's very much uh, a Provincetown. I don't know. Yeah, that's where her you know, heart is. Right. Her, her soul is there. Um, so kind of a funny story as to how they get out there. So they start renting... Um, the this little cottage and things like that and trying to find a place to stay while they're out there and hazel is connected with the provincetown players in a way um not directly in that she wrote for their plays and things like that but she ran in the same social circle and she actually knew agnes o'neill who was eugene o'neill's first wife and one day according to this article that i read from hazel's perspective she was walking through the dunes and she comes across Agnes. They'd met in New York already. And Agnes is like, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? And Hazel goes, we're trying to find a place to stay. And Agnes is like, Eugene and I are already out here. Go to this um, life-saving station and see if they'll rent you this other one. And then the rest is history. So it's actually because of Eugene O'Neill um, that Hazel was able to kind of get her connection to Provincetown in the same way. So. Because she ended, up, she ended up renting that lighthouse station, right? Um, no, he does. Station. She rents some of the cottages um, in the Peaked Hill Sand Dunes. Got it. Um, great. Okay. So Hazel um, writes articles and poems and things like that and publishes two novels. The first one in 1934 is called Salt House, which is the one I'm looking for. <laughs> so if anyone has Listeners, these... <laughs> please help me. I have been looking for this since Christmas and I cannot find Salt House. It's okay. I, I wouldn't expect to find it. I also have a feeling it will be incredibly expensive if I did. So um, her second novel in 1938 is called Three Women. So the first one, Salt House, is slightly fictionalized, but really discusses um, the lives of a bunch of young artists and writers who split time between New York City and Cape Cod. Sound familiar? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, so actually, according to this article that I read with um, about Hazel's life, the bookstores in Provincetown wouldn't sell it because it was too scandalous. It talked about, you know, actual happenings, which I think oh, is really funny. Interesting. Um, and the second one also takes place on the Cape, but during the Civil War. Um, throughout the 1930s and 40s, Hazel publishes five stories in The New Yorker um, and really starts to become a host and a welcoming presence to different writers and artists in Provincetown. Um, 
the houses that she lives in in 1936, so prior to that, she'd sort of been renting um, and moving around. She purchases a house for $50, a little dune shack called the Lhasa. And $50. Right? <laughs> I. <laughs> I definitely spent more than $50 this weekend, like, on groceries. Yep. Easily. <laughs> yep. So, you could have bought a dune shack in 1936. What am I doing with my life? Clearly, something wrong. <laughs> because neither of us own a dune shack in Provincetown. <laughs> Hashtag life goals. Mm-hmm. If anyone has a lead on where we could get a dune shack in Provincetown <laughs> for $50, let us know. Um, in 1943, she buys a second one that she names Euphoria, and this is the one that uh, she writes extensively about uh, throughout these interviews that I've taken a look at. Um, and she spends a lot of time, obviously, in them, but also renting them to other people. She loved the dunes and was so passionate about that area that it was just a natural step for her to invite and host and, and be hospitable to folks as they came to explore the dunes. So one of the things that I was reading about were the dinner parties that she used to host, and mm. just the idea of a dinner party on the dunes of Provincetown sounds like the most idyllic thing I could possibly think of. Especially, like, in my mind, it's like a, a like light to medium breeze, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you can see the tablecloths and the wind, you know, the bottom of the tablecloths, and the sun sort is going down, and you can hear yeah. the waves and the sand on your feet, and... I want to go to a dinner party on the dunes of Provincetown, Stephanie. <laughs> All right. Summer vacation. Summer Here vacation. We go. <laughs> um, so she was just known as this sort of remarkable, charismatic presence, one who enjoyed hosting. She enjoyed intellectual discussion and uh, people, for from all accounts that I've been able to track down. Uh, and the Peaked Hill Trust today still owns those shacks. Um, so Hazel dies in 2000, um, which means she's literally almost 100 years old when she dies. In May of 2000, she actually gets recognized by the city of Provincetown as the oldest resident, which I thought is really cool. I found the certificate, That's like the cool. little letter that they sent her that said, like, on this day, we acknowledge that Hazel Hawthorne is the oldest resident of Provincetown. How wonderful. And I thought that was really cool. Um, she, she got that from her mom. I guess so. Definitely not her dad. But she loves to cook. She's known for her, obviously, her hosting abilities. She enjoyed having fun. And she was also a real advocate for the environmental area that she inhabited. She was a real environmental activist prior to the term, you know, and concept being invented. But she really fought for the value of the land she lived on in the Provincetown area. Uh, which to this day still stands as it is. It was a big thing for the community to make it a, a preserve as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go out to Provincetown, there's a really neat city museum about it. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend it. Um, so I guess in closing, and the reason again why this is so short, um, Inca's podcast that she did to sort of document this amazing research and project that she did about Hazel is so worth a listen, I can't even begin. I think that in a lot of ways, her podcast is a really beautiful complement to what we do. Uh, We kind of just scratch the surface for people and and introduce them to things, but 
um, Inca's really beautifully sustained project is kind of what ideally I would love to do for the rest of my life. Um, she spent so much time and carefully curated, contacted, and has written about so much of Hazel's life, and it's really amazing. So we are going to turn it over to her to talk a little bit about her project and um, the Queen of the Dunes, as she was known. So we'll be posting links to all of her her website and her podcast. If she, if Hazel Hawthorne sounds interesting to you whatsoever, I would highly recommend her podcast. Um, the episodes are quite short. I think they're all around 15 minutes or so. Um, and they're beautifully created, definitely just of a high, high caliber um, and wonderfully produced. So we would highly recommend you listen to those. Um, but I think with that being said, we're going to switch over and hear a little bit from Inca about her amazing project. First of all, Inca, thank you so much for agreeing to answer some of our questions on this podcast. I have been a huge fan of your work and the things that you've done for Hazel and for her legacy, and we're so excited to have you on this podcast. Well, hi, Steph. Hi, John. And thanks so much for having me. What an honor to be a guest in a Get Lit podcast. Thanks. So to begin, we wanted to ask you a little bit about this project and how it started. Um, with what drew you to Hazel in the first place? You live in Finland, an entire ocean away from Provincetown, and kind of discovered her, based on your podcast, really by accident. So what drew you to her work and to her story? Um, you asked what drew me to work on Hazel's story. Well, like you said, um, I met her by accident. I encountered her in a photo exhibition in Berlin. And I can't explain it. <laughs> you know, for the life of me, I can't really explain it rationally, at least, what drew me to look into her life in more detail. Um, all I know is that seeing her portrait that day in the Walker Evans photo exhibition, the photo had a very strong pull and it has kept me close to the project all these years. And I do think art can have a, a transformative power, if you like, and it escapes rational explanation. And maybe that's exactly what happened to me that day with Hazel. I mean, I took my first notes the very same day of seeing her portrait. And the more I researched the more interested I've become. In the beginning, I didn't know anything about her. All I had was this portrait that spoke to me. Um, it felt as if she was reaching out to me from the portrait. That's what I had in the beginning. And her name, Hazel Hawthorne Werner. But that's it. Um, so I kind of started from scratch. And the more I've researched the more interested I've become in her life. Not only because she lived an interesting life. I mean, she's a writer of two novels, several short stories, poetry, book reviews. Um, she had a colorful private life, um, several children, two husbands. Um, it seems also several lovers. And she knew a lot of people in the sphere of arts and culture. And 
there are so many stories that I can't wait to tell <laughs> in the, in the book that I'm um, I'm working on. But for me, a part of the uh, the appeal of this project is that there is no single collection of Hazel's papers. There's no compilation in any university library that I could just go to and and research her life. Um, at least not yet. Um, and maybe after my project is finished, then there maybe is one. But I've had to put in an enormous amount of time and energy uh, and resourcefulness to to finding sources because they are hidden. They're hidden in archives and courthouses and newspaper archives and private collections and uh, they're they're hiding and it takes a lot of time to find them. So for me, that has definitely been part of the appeal um, all these years. That's so interesting, Inka, that you have found so much passion from a photograph that you saw in an exhibition and it's led you on this big search for who this woman was and almost putting together a jigsaw puzzle where you don't even know if all the pieces exist. Uh, so what, what a fascinating story. Um, to follow up on Stephanie's question uh, and what you've said, Hazel lived an unconventional life for a woman of her time. Um, do you have a favorite story about Hazel that you discovered during your research? A favorite story um, about Hazel that I've discovered? Well, you know, I think there are so many, actually. She lived a colorful life. And I guess um, there are so many that I could choose from. But um, two, two stories come to mind. Um, and they're actually both from uh, the late, late 1920s. Uh, first, in 1928, Hazel, too, took some time off from uh, her life, her everyday life, and, and traveled to Germany. I mean, what are the odds of that? I know that it doesn't really mean anything that our lives, mine and Hazel's, that they intersect in any way. I, I know that it doesn't mean anything. Or does it? <laughs> you know, what are the odds that we both take time off from our lives and to move to Germany? And um, <laughs> the small village that she spent time in, uh, or at least uh, the majority of her time in Germany, which was... Um, well, not entirely a full year, um, a little less, but anyway, um, she spent most of her time in a small village, not too far from Travemünde, uh, where I traveled through. I mean, I, I took a ferry from Helsinki to Travemünde and then drove to Berlin. And this this little village that Hazel stayed in, it's, it's really not far from Travemünde. Um, unfortunately, I only learned about it afterwards, but it was an interesting moment, <laughs> one of those wake-up call type of moments where, 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 where you learn something and then you kind of stand up and you're like, what? <laughs> what is this real? 
Um, so yeah, there's that. There's Germany um, in both of our lives. But there, there's also another story, which I like to call the, the so-called horse incident, um, which has an element of tragedy to it, um, a lot of publicity as well. Um, it took place in, uh, in the fall of 1929, when Hazel had decided after the summer that she would spend the fall and winter in the old life-saving station in Peacot Hill, the one that would two years later fall into the sea. So there she was, uh, spending spending her time in the dunes, and one Saturday evening she rode the pony that they had at the station. She rode the pony to Provincetown through Snail Road, which was, I guess, quite, or at least a little bit different from what it is nowadays. There were bushes and trees, and it was dark, And while she was riding towards town, somebody attacked her, tried to grab the bridle of the horse or the pony, Betsy. Uh, The name of the pony was Betsy. And Hazel just rode on. She didn't stop. The people couldn't reach her. She just rode on and went to town and ran her errands and reported the incident to the police and had two uh, coast guardsmen to escort her back. To, to the life-saving station, where her children, her five children, were being looked after by uh, a friend who was also staying at the station at the time. So there she is going back to the station in the evening after this stressful incident, only to realize that her children are gone. Her husband at the time had arrived to the dunes and taken the children. And I'm 100% convinced that the children were safe at all times. It just seems that Hazel and Celian, her first husband, had a major difference of opinion as to how the children would be raised that fall and that winter, like where they should or would live in this more bohemian setting in the old life-saving station or somewhere in a more traditional setting, maybe closer to a school, etc. And this incident, which I believe also led to the final decision of the couple getting a divorce uh, the following year, uh, it has a strong element of tragedy to it. And I think the incident received more publicity than many of Hazel's writings, which I find rather disturbing, personally. Um, I mean, (laughs) such a tragic event involving children, the end of a marriage, you know, it's a personal, um, a difficult situation and then all the gossip around it seemed to interest a lot of people. And I find that really sad. Uh, so I can't say that's really a, a favorite story in, a, in, a, in any kind of positive sense. But for me, it's been an eye-opener in the sense that 
you may pursue your passion like Hazel was. She wanted to be a writer and she really tried, even though, you know, life in the 20s for her revolved a lot around her family. But even if you try, you may end up in a very bizarre situation uh, like the horse incident. That is a remarkable um, set of tales, honestly. Um, in terms of kind of your first coincidences, I guess, between, I think um, part of the thrilling thing about discovering these authors is this sort of odd connection that I feel like I have, and it sounds like you feel like you have as well. Um, I know that there is no connection between me and any of the authors that I've been studying, but every time I see something that could be linked as a coincidence, I get maybe more excited than I should. But I think that's kind of part of the fun of, of doing research, um, is discovering those magical gems along the way, including, I think, as you've articulated this anecdote about Betsy and her family, and what it would mean to kind of have all of your personal life get more attention than the work that you're trying to do, which is incredibly, I mean, I can't even imagine how difficult that must be, but I think that that's really, it's a remarkable story and I'm, and I'm tragic, so glad you shared I think, it. Yeah, not just for the individual, not just for Hazel and the children and the husband, is it sad, but it's a comment on society too, that mm -hmm. that was more interesting than the work she was trying to do. Right, which has to be incredibly disheartening to know that your work is less exciting to people but in their voyeuristic yeah. eyes yeah um so kind of based off of that obviously with the life that hazel lived there seemed like there'll be a lot of stories that you have to share on your project um but are there any particular life lessons that you learned from studying hazel is there um something that through her life and through her anecdote she has maybe encouraged you to do a life lesson that I've learned from Hazel or from studying Hazel, well, I think I would have to say patience. I'm pretty impatient by nature. Um, and this project has taught me so much about, well, not only about being true to myself, like following the path that I've um I can't even say that I've chosen this path. I somehow ended up on this path and then I've made the choice every day or every time that I work on the project. But I've learned a lot of patience and that's been hard because there are days when I would really like to see results ready. I would like to see everything ready, you know, the book the podcast, uh, everything. I, I wish it was ready already. But then again, I know that my thinking gets better with time. My writing definitely is better with time. And like my overall understanding of this project of Hazel's life gets better over time. Uh, particularly because all the sources have not been available to me from the beginning. I've had to look for them. I've had to find them. And sometimes when I go back to my sources these days, you know, some of the sources that I found 
two years ago or three years ago, they reveal new things, which I was totally blind to two or three years ago. I've learned more. And now uh, a name, a person, an incident or something, a detail that didn't mean anything to me some time ago, connect to dots that I've been struggling to connect. So everything in this project gets better with time. What a beautiful sentiment. I think we could all take uh, <laughs> the same lesson that you've learned and apply that to our Please lives. Please be patient. <laughs> because mm-hmm. things are likely to get better with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, continuing on with the importance that you've found in Hazel, why do you think that she is compelling today? Why should we continue to study her work? It's my dream that someone would research Hazel's writings and offer some analysis on it. I think I'm much more, um, or or my focus is a little bit more on her life, like revealing her life story. And I'm I'm not sure if I want to, or if, if I'm even capable of analyzing her writings that much. But I think it would be awesome to have someone do that. I would find it really interesting because when we think of her writings, she was very particular with the language that she used, whether it's in a novel or a short story or or sometimes even in, in, in the book reviews that she wrote. She was very particular with the language that she, she used. And um, instead of me trying to explain it to you, I was thinking, like, would it be okay if I read a paragraph from one of her short stories, Camera Angles on Three Lives, which came out in 1931. And it's, uh, it's one of the short stories that was very well reviewed. Um, the first one that came out with a bang, sort of, in the U.S., and I think the first paragraph already kind of shows what I'm trying to, to tell here. Why don't I read it to you? That would be absolutely amazing. Now there are only two, B and the girl, K. The younger man, S, is also cast to appear later. By a singular process of things gotten through, they have arrived at the shore of the Baltic Sea, from which point they telescope backwards. At the long end of the barrel, they both view a kaleidoscopic shifting of previously experienced days, which drop into new positions and are interspersed with shady colors of a certain discontent induced by American filling stations, billboards and red fronts. But the kaleidoscope is an old-fashioned and sentimental way of dealing with memories, nor can fresh experiences show through its doubtful medium. Unperceived by themselves, the tempo of their home country has accelerated their desires, and they live and think according to a restless, aspiring movie technique. Yeah. So there it is, the first paragraph of Camera Angles on Three Lives. What do you think? Inka, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that Hazel has such a unique and particular way of choosing her language. 
instead of saying that uh, they went to the seashore, uh, she says, by a singular process of things gotten through, uh, meaning that all of those previous events were just something to get through to move past until they arrive at their destination. Uh, it gives such a depth of meaning to how the characters viewed the process. And even more than that, she casts this foreshadowing on it by saying there's these two women now and someone cast to appear later. Mm-hmm. And she really takes this framing device of the uh, of the camera on these lives to, and really runs with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that I obviously haven't read as much of Hazel Hawthorne as either Inca or Stephanie, but I think that that does give me a, a big glimpse into the way that she uses the written language. And I think it's sort of interesting, and I haven't read this particular piece, but um, to give these characters names with letters instead of um, actual names, <laughs> I think is also an interesting choice in anonymity. And so often when we gaze at something through the lens of a camera, um, obviously if we know the people in the picture that create something, but to look at a picture about people you don't necessarily know um, kind of presents that same anonymity that she does when she doesn't give her characters actual names. So again, this could be my mistaking in this paragraph, not knowing the rest of the story, but to not have revealed the names of the characters at the beginning, I think prompts us to create such a richer sense of imagery within our own imagination, as opposed to one that she creates for us. Yeah, to me, it seems that there's nothing extra there. Every word is, you know, heavy with meaning. Every word is there on purpose. Every word has its place. And that, to me, seems very typical of of Hazel's writing. Which definitely, I think, is something that students today get a lot in reading Hawthorne, among, you know, many other authors. But um, I don't don't get an opportunity to teach a lot of uh, short stories from female authors. And so I think that to have what an amazing juxtaposition that could be to have these two incredibly sparse and efficient authors maybe compared to one another. Um, So honestly, in that in itself, I think you've done a beautiful job of choosing something for us to understand about her work um, in, in that essence, a reason to continue to read it. For sure. On that uh, question of longevity and uh, meaning, uh, has this project learning more about Hazel changed the way that you see the world or understand your life? Mm, Well, I don't know if this has changed the way I see the world. Um, I mean, I'm a political scientist by education, and I'm really interested in history. Um, I understand the, the way that history works in the sense that there will always be a lot of forgotten stories. People who just never make it to the pages of history because their lives are not documented, for example. And this seems to be the case for many women in history. It's it's not, or these forgotten stories are not so much uh, a surprise to me, I guess. But in terms of me understanding my life? Well, there's definitely a time before and after Hazel in my life. 
you know, I'm on this journey. I've been on this journey now for several years. And even though I'm the one who has to clock in the hours, I'm the one who has to do the work to to sit down and write and read and record podcasts and, you know, contact people to find the sources and so on. I feel very strongly that this is a shared journey. There are so many people on this journey with me. I mean, like you guys, for example, you are here on this journey with me. And so are so many of Hazel's family members and relatives and friends and people she worked with uh, in Provincetown, people who still remember her. Um, all those people who have helped me in different libraries and archives. So even though I'm the one who is doing the work and I feel a lot of pressure for it, I have to admit, being impatient <laughs> as I am, it makes it easier to think of this as a shared journey. I think you have given us too much credit, but um, I do really appreciate and acknowledge the idea of a shared journey. I think that, again, kind of makes an experience so powerful, especially to kind of know that uh, with the advents of the technology that we have, we've been able, I think, both in our own respective projects to connect with people that we otherwise never would have met or never would have known um, about. And I think that that has made this experience so much richer is not only the historical you know, reward that we're getting out of discovering these new things, but also in the people that we get to meet along the way. And um, I sincerely hope that the rest of your journey in creating this work for Hazel um, turns out to be fruitful in both senses. Um, so kind of with that, one of the things that drew me first and foremost to Hazel and her work was Provincetown, which I spent a lot of my time studying in college and had the opportunity to go out and do a lot of research on. And John and I took a trip there and we fell in love with the dunes and with the light. And it, as cliche as it sounds, because so many people have said this about Provincetown, the light is really why so many people go. And it's completely true. But I know that you had the opportunity to take a trip as well. So um, what were some of your favorite things or what was one of, what was your favorite thing about going to visit Provincetown? My favorite part of Provincetown? Oh, Provincetown. <laughs> Such a wonderful place. And the light, it's amazing. It's, it's hard to imagine. I read about it in advance. That the, the the light is amazing, and that's why Provincetown has has drawn in, you know, so many artists and painters, especially because the light is amazing, and it really is. In different times of day, the light changes. The golden hour is something I don't think I've quite experienced elsewhere. Um, and the the light when it's bright, it's really bright. And I also like. Or not only like, I love the narrow streets of the town. I've moved around a lot by bicycle. And for me, uh, the east end, uh, east end part of town is special. Somehow, to me, that's the magical part of town, most likely because that's where Hazel used to live. And, um, and that's where I can follow her footsteps in a way. But 
when I think of the the best part or my favorite part of Provincetown, I think I'm gonna have to go with people because I've been so welcomed by these incredible people who live in Provincetown and who knew Hazel or who used to work with her or who have in other ways helped me in this journey, you know, either by inviting me to their homes for dinner or or, or letting me, you know, sleep in their house or, or, or helped me with logistics. You know, the examples are, there are so many. And um, in 2017, when I visited Provincetown for the first time, I ended up uh, sitting in people's kitchens, just sitting with them and, and talking, mostly listening though, looking at their personal files, meeting more people and seeing how this town has a, I don't know, at least the old timers seem to have uh, this wonderful network. So that was amazing, uh, the way people welcomed me and uh, the way they helped me with the project in, in, in many ways. But of course, the town is incredibly beautiful and worth a visit uh, only for its, um, you know, the layers of history and the beauty. I entirely agree. When I was doing my undergraduate projects and had the opportunity to connect with people um, on Provincetown and at the library, they just, the generosity of their, you know, knowledge and their abilities and their time was really remarkable. And it's something that I think uh, anyone who goes to Provincetown has the opportunity to experience. So I 100% agree. And it sounds like we both give ringing endorsements for anyone interested in going to Provincetown. We are happy to provide travel advice. Um, but this, um, so your podcast is titled Finding Hazel Hawthorne, and it's sort of the, the moniker for your entire project. And it's literally taken you all over the world, Germany and the United States, among other places, um, and led to the production of your podcast, which is amazing, and your website. So kind of based on that, and again, I, I created this podcast specifically for students, uh, hoping to kind of introduce and connect them to worlds they might not otherwise have had access to. Um, so with that being said, what sorts of advice would you give to other people pursuing passion projects like this one? Advice? Oh, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, qualified to, to, to offer any advice for, for anyone. But about passion projects, I guess... Um, at least for me, learning to to enjoy the journey is key. It's not about getting the work done. I mean, of course, it's good to set goals and it's really good to work towards achieving those goals. But if, as is in my case, you know, it takes years on top of everything else in your life, I have a full-time job, there's friends, family, I have a dog who needs walks every day, there's groceries that you need to shop, there's dinners that you need to cook, and so on and so on. You need to rest as well. Um, the project may take forever, 
um, and learning to enjoy the journey is a major part. In a way, I guess you can think that getting to the finish line, it's, it's not even the thing. <laughs> the, the, the main part is, is being on the journey, embarking the journey in the first place, following that path, whatever it is. Uh, passion projects, I guess they can be of, uh, well, very different kinds. Inka, I think uh, Stephanie and I both agree with you that it's a lot about the journey. I know at least for us with this passion project of ours, Get Lit, it's uh, it's definitely been a journey from just talking about it to sitting down and finding out exactly how we were going to tackle each author to, you know, Get Lit Live. And it's just sort of it's something I would encourage everyone to do. If you have something that you've been talking or dreaming about doing for a while, just try it for a little bit. And you'll be amazed <laughs> that 45, 50 episodes later, it's still something that you're uh, excited about doing. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I, I agree with both of those sentiments. And I think that um, it was sort of funny that you started out by saying, oh, I don't know that I'm qualified to give advice because I think so often, um, you know, I think about this all the time is, yes, I have a, a deep-seated interest in these things. I'm willing to put in the hours of research to, to make them um, happen. But all I have is a degree in English. You know, I have no additional training or schooling other than the passion that I have. But maybe that's okay. Um Maybe maybe I'm not the, the expert, and and that's okay. It's it's sort of this journey and the and the discovery and the joy along the way. I mean, I don't think if you'd said a year ago I would be connecting with people in Finland and have traveled all over the United States in conquest of author information that I <laughs> would have believed it. But um, here we are. So um, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Um, folks, listeners will be posting all of the information to access Inca's amazing project. I would highly recommend if this interview is interesting to you uh, that you go ahead and take a look at it and a listen. Um, the episodes are wonderful and the website is beautifully curated. So please do yourself a favor and take a look at that. Um, so thank you for coming coming in, quote unquote, um, from Finland to, to join us for this episode. And listeners, thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one.